A hacker is a person who uses technical skills to overcome a challenge or a problem. Typically, the term is used to describe someone working within a computerized system, but the hacker mentality can be very useful in other contexts. By breaking down problems into component parts, thinking about the rules of the system you're operating in, and identifying your goals, you may find yourself using surprising means to achieve victory. In this episode, Mike Heschley and Dan Gonzalez join us to discuss the hacker mentality and how they use it every day to solve complex, hard problems. Mike Heschley is the resident mad scientist at BMNT and is interested in leveraging unique data sets and AI and loves creating science from art. He also worked for the federal government from 2006 to 2018 in a number of roles from analyst to engineer to innovator in residence. Dan Gonzalez is the head of product at BMNT and enjoys building products and systems that improve organizations. He had spent over 15 years in the startups and innovation space, creating, making, and sometimes breaking things. Together, they're building artificial intelligence software products at BMNT to scale their team's ability to solve complex problems at incredible speed. Mike, Dan, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Great. Well, um, there's a blog post that we'll link to in uh, in the show notes titled, To Solve Your Problem, Think Like a Hacker, uh, that you posted on your BMNT blog that uh, really resonated with me. And I thought it would be great to have you on the show to dig into um, how we can think about applying the hacker mentality to problems that are outside of traditional cybersecurity and kind of makerspace um, and, and looking more holistically at a broader set of problems. So I'm really uh, excited about this show. I think it's going to be great to dig in with you guys. So Mike, uh, maybe you can get us started by uh, telling us a little bit about how do you define a hacker and, and, and what they do? Yeah, I mean, so I think about a hacker as, and by the way, like uh, in the federal government, I, I did spend quite a bit of time doing cybersecurity and, and you know, offense, defense side of, uh, of the house. So I certainly have experience doing kind of the real like hacker sort of stuff, right? Um, and it was, it's been really interesting taking that mindset of uh, how you, you know, looking at a system and decomposing it into its atomic pieces and really figuring out what are the, what does each component within the system do? How does it act? And then how can I modify it to do something different, right? That I need to achieve some larger outcome. Um, so something simple, you know, could be uh, changing an input to a system, you know, like changing one of the variables as it comes in, or it could be something far more complicated where you're actually permuting the kind of like the, the base, uh, like the, the physical laws or right? the operating system itself, the way that it operates, you could go after it. Um, and we've used this kind of idea of, you know, like, really trying to decompose a problem, understand each little piece of it, and then the overall constraints of the system to say, hey, like, how can we, how can we permute this in such a way that the problem becomes much easier to solve? Um, some problems seem absolutely impossible at the outset, um, but as soon as you start to decompose like this, almost always there's a pretty easy solution that gets you, gets you really close or all the way to, to your desired outcome. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I think like, you know, your background as a hacker, you're oftentimes playing inside of a system that somebody else designed and you're thinking about, all right, well, I have these goals in mind that maybe aren't what the system designer intended, uh, but using this system of goals, um, this system of rules and my goals, I'm going to kind of think laterally and maybe try to 
try to achieve my goals using r- those rules in a very unintended way. Um, and, and that's what I love so much about like the process of hacking and um, uh, working on problems to create potentially surprising outcomes. Uh, and, and Dan, in this blog post, uh, you guys kind of make the point that, well, while traditional settings for hackers might involve things like finding exploitable conditions in software or you know modifying a finished product so that it does something different and has unintended features or is used in a completely different context um, while those are bread and butter kind of hacking problems there are other contexts for thinking like a hacker and being able to solve a broader class of problems what are some of those uh, what are some of those problems um, well, I think when when you start to think about the the systems that you know that Mike and I you know attack is probably the wrong word, but the the systems that we're regularly tasked with with looking at um, you know either improving or reinventing or or otherwise changing in some way, um, you know I think a lot of those fundamental techniques that that hackers employ are are highly leverageable, right? You know Mike kind of alluded to some of this in terms of um, you know just the different vectors and the ways that that the the things were designed or set up to be um, to be used can sometimes actually be used in in very different and creative ways. And it's really um, the work that we do is talking to you know the people, our customers who use these systems every day, and and helping kind of more deeply understand the work that they do and and actually the objectives, like you mentioned, that that they're really trying to accomplish, and how a lot of times these systems kind of get in the way of of accomplishing those objectives. Right. So it's it's taking a new look at from that objective standpoint, right, looking at where they want to be, what's the quickest path to get there, right? And and what things do we need to avoid in order to to achieve that objective? Um, and then what things need to be creative to enable us to either, you know, work around these existing systems or just, you know, provide a, a different pathway. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's such a cool insight. Like, um, I spent a little bit of time at Defense Digital Service when I was in uniform, and uh, they they had a job title that was uh, was bureaucracy hacker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the idea was, you know, we want to achieve this outcome within the bureaucracy. We want to, you know, get something um, acquired or procured, or we want to uh, get permission to do something. And um, you know, the organization itself wants you to be able to do that, but has to work within these regulations. And so thinking about how the rules are set up and how you might be able to use either, you know, special authorities or maybe some tool that's used in a different context that maybe the designers hadn't anticipated to be able to achieve your outcome. Like it's a totally non-technical problem. Um, at least like it doesn't involve digital technology, but, uh, but nonetheless, that like hacker mentality is, is a, um, I think like a industry spanning uh, skill set that that makes people successful in other contexts. Um, and uh, so, uh, Mike, you had a pretty interesting, clarifying example in this blog post uh, that involved a federal government team that needed a way to analyze like very large quantities of computer forensics data. Can you maybe set us up a little bit on what that problem looked like and what the kind of high level process was? Yeah, absolutely. So this this group, you know, they got in a huge amount of this computer forensics data, um, and they were always they were always in a backlog state, right? Like only more data was coming in, and they were they weren't getting it out of their queue any faster. Um, but they had this really interesting constraint, which was legally they were obligated to have eyes on every piece of data, every file. Um, they didn't have to do much with it, but they had to say that they'd like you know basically checked each piece of data and. This meant that their triage process was was pretty brutal, and they couldn't use 
a lot of the traditional forensics tools that, you know, bin and sort and filter and like kind of get you down to that, that, you know, small subset of things that you really want to take a look at. Um, so they're really struggling because the, the, their, their problem space was quite unique. Uh, most people don't have that obligation they have um, or the quantity. They were in the terabytes of data. And this is, you know, a number of years ago where that was still quite a big number um, for, for people. Um, so, they took that, we took the process, right? And really understood exactly how they went from, you know, data comes in, what's available, what type of metadata is already extracted? What does it look like to triage that? What are they, what are they legally obligated to do? Um, and then once, once it is triaged, what is the rest of the process? You know, what does actual analysis look like and how do they report, uh, generate that Intel report and, and, you know, going out the door to one of their customers? Um, and we very quickly identified that the biggest pain point uh, was really around this, this triage piece where, they had to look at each piece of data and they had to make some decision of whether they were, you know, spend further time inspecting it or not. Um, and that really, that's where they spent the most of their time. And they, they wanted to spend the most of their time actually doing the analysis on the stuff they cared about. Um, so they were very much in the, the, the wrong place where they were really uh, spending more time and effort. And it wasn't providing a whole lot of value. Um, so we, we basically dug into that piece, right? Like, okay, here's the pain point of how do you triage this stuff where you still have to check every piece of data. Um, and we started using that to look for for analogs, right? Like who else in this in the world, right? What other problems are there where where people have to look at a lot of things very quickly and make uh, decisions based on a few data points? Um, and you know, there's a number of different different ways to solve this problem, um, but the one that came up as the the most relevant was actually uh, those you know swipe left, swipe right, right? That Tinder style interface. Uh, as it turns out, I'll, and, and I'll be honest, right, I've never actually, like I missed Tinder <laughs> post, uh, post me in that, that single world, but uh, I guess it's super quick and people are just like, you know, they can zip right through a whole bunch of stuff really quickly. Um, and they had a crazy increase in speed. They could basically, you know, tell us the, the pieces of metadata to extract uh, that were relevant for each, you know, that would help them make a decision about each piece of data, whether they wanted to you know, go back and spend more time or not. Um, and they could just rip through data with this sort of interface. Um, and we ran some tests, right, to validate that. Put some real data in, um, have the analyst test it, you know, one way, another way, and, and you know, the, the new way and the old way. And uh, it was pretty, pretty amazing how quickly uh, they, the entire organization bought into this thing that sounds terrible, right? We're using Tinder for forensics. <laughs> but uh, in the end, it, they, they loved it. Yeah, it worked really well. Yeah, it's such a great story, um, and I think it's also a really good showcase of not only thinking like a hacker, but uh, thinking like a product owner. And you know, Dan, I know this is something that you do at BMNT is um, trying to identify user problems and then bringing technological solutions to bear on those user problems. But it's always in a in a very user focused and user centric way, right? Um, and what I what I think so interesting about this particular example is that you bridged a gap between um, you know something that very technical engineering minded folks do, uh, which is system decomposition and thinking about all right, what are all the subsystems here and how are they interacting and you know if you're doing a traditional hacking thing of trying to subvert a system, you might say, okay, well, I think, you know, this particular interface uh, is, is probably likely going to have um, the, uh, the right undocumented features for me to be able to get what I want or like do some analysis of the attack surface and have that very kind of engineering oriented analysis of the, of the system. But product starts from a different perspective, right? Product is always looking at the user and saying, what is the, 
what is the user's problem here and uh, and how do I solve that problem with technology? So when you were when you were solving this problem, Dan, like how did you think about um, rectifying the very clinical kind of system decomposition part of it with the um, much more user involved kind of um, user research and 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 pro- problem discovery. Yeah, I think you know for us it, it really just started with having the right people in the room, right? So that the people like the analysts that Mike spoke of, um, and just listening to them talk about their work and and the pain that was involved in in their day to day work, right? Having to sift through, you know, we're talking about a you know period of time where you know, we have like literal hard drives coming back from wherever they're coming from, you know, full of gigabytes of, of data, whether that's, you know, pictures or text or other, you know, various types of files and not having a really good triage for them. Right. So, you know, you can imagine uh, maybe an image is, is a pretty quick glance for most people. You can look at an image and say that's interesting, not interesting. But when you start to get to things like text files or other types of documents, um, it really slows the process down and it starts, you know, kind of grinding on the analyst. So um, that was kind of the first key for us was that, OK, there's there's a real pain point here and it's really limiting the throughput of this system. Right. These these analysts who comprise this system. Um, so, you know, that was the problem that we decided to hone in on was the fact that there is a bottleneck, right? And the bottleneck is people. And it's because the interface that they have is the typical, you know, Windows Explorer view, which which we're all kind of familiar with and, and how clunky that can be. Um, so, you know, it takes, you know, X amount of clicks to, you know, navigate to a folder, to select the file to open, to double click on the file, to view the file, to close the file, assign it, right? Um, so all of those things together, and and multiplied over a very large quantity of information creates a really huge bottleneck in the system, right? So that was kind of the the impetus for us looking into different ways that we could then, like, what can we do to improve this triage, right? Even if our um, even if the number of things that we miss goes up, right? If if the the end result is a little worse than than it was in terms of accuracy, the throughput, you know, in theory, should more than make up for that. So that was kind of the the vector that we we chose to. To attack around the problem was, you know, how can we massively increase the throughput? You know, knowing that we have to use humans, right? AI just kind of isn't there yet. Um, maybe it is today, but I, I think at the time it was more like, how do we continue to use the, you know, inherent pattern matching ability of the human brain to to really solve this, and how do we put more stuff in front of that brain more quickly? One of the really important pieces that we we did when talking to these people was it wasn't just what's your problem, how does it manifest, how do you work, right? What do you need to, what do you need to accomplish? But it was also what do you actually like to do, right? Like, what do you want this thing to work like, right? Or what do you want it to look like? How do you want it to act? And as a result, you end up with users who've designed their own solution, right? So they're already bought into it. You don't have to convince them to use the thing. They're, they got their fingerprints all over it. Um, and they enjoy using it. So they actually perform at a higher capacity than they, than they would have even before, right? Because it's it's their thing that they built. So they're just like, they enjoy using it, which obviously, like, if you enjoy your job, you tend to be a little bit better and quicker and all these things, right? So it unlocks a lot having those have those folks in the room to, to build their own interfaces and solutions, right? I'm sure you've experienced this, Josh. Yeah. I was just going to add, Josh, one, one more thing on, on that is, um, you know, one thing I think we haven't mentioned um, was, was the constraints 
that we had to operate within, right? So, you know, we're talking about government systems, which are not sophisticated, and in most cases, a decade plus older than the stuff that we're all accustomed to using. Um, you know, so we're talking about technology like Microsoft SharePoint and and Windows Explorer. And so we, in, in, a, in a way, we had to constrain whatever solution we were going to come up with to be able to operate within that environment, um, which, you know, much like like taking a, a deeper look at a system, right? You know, if I'm limited to a certain character count or whatever, um, you know, this is this is what I can do within the constraints that I'm given, right? So having some sort of binary left or right style interface was was something that actually fit neatly into that box as well. And what was the? I mean, it's it's it makes so much sense now that you mention it that there there is a parity between the problem that Tinder is solving and the problem of triaging documents into interesting, not interesting. Um, but like, what was the, what was the process on your end to making that association? Um, did you have sort of like an inventory of, uh, different kinds of apps that, uh, that you've thought about ahead of time and had experience with? Was it sort of a more creative art form of saying, wow, this, this is a really unique kind of interesting problem and just brainstorming and being creative until you found you, you happened upon Twitter. What was the, what was the process? Or sorry, Tinder. Yeah. It's great because, you know, there's, when we, when we do these sort of interactions with, with the government folks, um, we actually have like, you know, I, I think it's like going to be a 10 or 15 minute session where we just, we just basically show them the world. Like, Hey, there's a couple things out there. Like I'll go and find a few really interesting you know, we would call like highly orthogonal uh, pieces of tech, right? Things they would never consider looking at just to kind of like free their mind, right? Like Neo and the Matrix, like kind of like you can see the code a little bit. And then we give them 15 minutes in the internet. And we say, go find stuff that you think is interesting. Um, and, and they'll come back with stuff that we would never find ourselves um, because they start to see what they're, that, that space of, you know, they decompose the problem down to that fundamental understanding of I need to make, it's no, it's no longer triage of cyber forensics data. Right. It's 100 percent. I need to make very quick decisions about very small pieces of data. Um, yes. No. Right. I just like once they have it in that kind of uh, it's kind of like middleware. Right. Like it's not it's, it's not a solution. It's no longer a problem. It's just this like very clear, like first principles description of a process. Once you have that and you're focusing on that, you can very cl- clearly look at these the solution space and start to see things that. Like Tinder no longer is a dating app, right? It's, it's a, a thing that's really fast at making decisions. And um, maybe like a, you know, something like the your, your spam filter on your email. It's another, like that's no longer a spam filter for email. It's a thing that looks at text and makes really quick decisions based on how I've trained it, right? Like the, you just kind of see the world through the lens of that that problem. Uh, some people are better at this than others, quite frankly, right? It's, uh, I'd say the, the hacker mindset people are way better at this. Um, and most people can get okay at it with a little bit of effort. Um, but I don't know, Dan, if you have any separate opinions on this. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was just going to note, um, you know, as, as part of that, one of the things that we started to do years ago with our customers was help them um, essentially templatize um, a way to describe their problem, right? So one of the things that, that we do, you know, kind of broad scale across the company and, and all of the things that we do is, um, is this process called problem curation, right? Which is really just abstracting a problem down to its core components so that it can be communicated to other people, right? Because when you can talk about a problem to your grandmother, um, that 
at that level, you're you're able to much more broadly describe what you're working on and have other people provide input that, that's actually useful and actionable. Um, so as part of that, right, distilling a problem down to those core components and making it, you know, plain English language, easy to read, you can then kind of pull yourself back up to like this 30,000 foot level and say, okay, what are products out in the world, you know, that are free from the constraints that I have that address this problem at, at its core, right? So forget the context, forget that I'm sitting in a dark room somewhere, right? So, you know, if this is, if my problem is being able to quickly, visually as a human, look at two things and decide which one is better, what what products exist that that attempt to solve that, you know, free of context? And and that's where you can start to stumble upon, you know, the the, the dating app stuff and, and different instances where people have built things that's more contextually specific but that you might be able to, like in our parlance, we call it beg, borrow, and steal, right? That you might be able to borrow something or, or leverage some work and thinking that somebody's already done. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes so much sense. And I think it's, it's, there's a balance between having like a rigorous framework for how you think about and solve these kinds of problems and giving yourself creative space to find very innovative solutions and um, think laterally about problems. I know this is even more important in the government where you you guys spend a lot of your time building tech and solving um, problems, both big and small problems, because you know the government sort of has its own unique constraints about the way that it can acquire things, the way that... Uh, um, you can deploy solutions. There are restrictions on the kinds of networks. You've got classification issues. And so there's a whole like layer, layers and layers of friction on top of like building, um, you know, what would otherwise sometimes be simple technical tools. So give me a sense of um, how rigorous is your template when you're, you know, going to government customers and uh, and solving these problems? Is it, is it generally a pretty loose process or do you have like a... Um, uh, a workflow that you typically uh, use. Yeah, so we, we definitely have <clears throat> we definitely have a workflow that we use. We have our uh, I'd say like pre pre COVID we did a lot of um, did a lot of workshops as a company, right? Come together for two or three days, and we had a process that we would facilitate a group through. And quite frankly, something like having people go out on the internet and look for interesting tech to to be inspired by or to you know to like uh, let's take the way that the tinder does this i'm not going to take tinder i'm not going to i'm not going to buy tinder right but instead i'm going to i'm going to just use the way that they interact right with the user interface uh, i'm going to borrow that and uh, we don't do that until later on because we actually spend most of the first couple days or the first couple you know probably the first day and like the you know the first half of the second day kind of just getting them in the right mind space right and a lot of that is talking through the problem doing a bunch of different activities that gets them to, you know, like we talked about, decompose that problem, kind of get input from the group as to, to what they really want to focus on, understand that workflow. Um, so that has been uh, something that we've, we've trained our, a bunch of our facilitators on. We do it pretty frequently. We still do it virtually now. Um, but it's something that Dan and I are starting to chip away at and see if we can actually automate a lot of this, right? Can we look at the components that we're trying to, you know, use to accomplish some greater outcome? And what if we you know, took the same approach and we decompose this entire process that we used to do in person in two days. Let's decompose it down into a constituent pieces and say, what can we do? You know, how, what's the best way to deliver this outside of an in-person event? Um, and so, you know, our first example is something like just running an accelerator that takes, you know, five weeks and it's, you know, much more asynchronous. That's an example, but it could also be done through software, right? Where, you know, we get, you know, we're working on a chatbot that goes out and talks to everybody. 
and it understands how each person feels individually, right? And that's just another way to to interact with a number of people and uh, and learn what how you know what their opinion is on a thing, get some feedback, but also feed information back to them. Uh, so I'm sure Dan has a very different answer as well, by the way. Yeah, so I think um, you know a lot of what we've seen, and, and I'm sure this exists uh, across the commercial space too, but specifically within government, is that COVID really compressed this timeline of of digital transformation for a lot of organizations just out of necessity, right? You know, they, you know, literally overnight, a lot of people had to figure out how to get work done outside of government systems, right? Outside of formerly, you know, non-allowable or allowable technology stacks. Um, so it, it created a really interesting window of opportunity for us specifically, um, opportunity, but also a, a pain point to be solved, right? So, so kind of two for one. Um, and what that forced us to do, as, as Mike kind of alluded to, was find a way to reach a massively distributed workforce and still capture all this information that we're, we're accustomed to capturing in the same rigorous kind of way, but to do it you know, asynchron- asynchronously, remotely, over an unknown tech stack and, and a whole bunch of other variables that, that compounded. And, you know, essentially what we built, like, it, like Mike mentioned, was a um, kind of a conversational AI front end that would go out and talk to people and ask them a series of pointed questions that aim to really capture those tenets that, that we mentioned before, right? Those core atomic pieces of what comprises a problem um, that over the years we've kind of crafted as, as part of our trade craft and, and used to, to really decompose problems. And what we found was that people were, A, receptive to it, you know, B, we're intrigued by the fact that, you know, we could do it this way. And then on, on the output side, the leadership side, who is actually the recipient of all of this information, um, it actually produced some really, really interesting results. And it kind of gave them a view of their organization and their teams that they hadn't had before, right? Think of it like a transparency layer on top of their own view, right? Because any, any organization's leadership has a view of how they think that organization works, but oftentimes, you know, anybody who's worked in a large organization knows that that's not always the most accurate view of the org. Um, so we were kind of able to give them a different view of like where people's heads were at, where the friction points and the challenges were. And it, it just created this really interesting and new conversation with, with our customers that um, continues to be really inspiring in a lot of ways. So I know you know you you do more or less exclusively government work uh, and doing business with the government and solving government problems has um, you know tenant opportunities and challenges. I think in general the sorts of objective functions for government agencies are distinct from uh, those those in the commercial space. You know, for example. Most corporations are driven by um, driven by profit and returns on investment and, and those sorts of things. And uh, governments generally are driven by requirements and mission and, and those sorts of things. Um, do you see any particular um, uh, kind of accommodations that you need to make in, in your process of how you solve uh, problems for the government that – um, maybe are unique or distinct from how you might do the same thing for a commercial organization? Yeah, I think, um, you know, and, and Mike, I'd, I'd welcome your view too. Um, you know, it, it starts, for us, it starts, it started pretty early on um, with uh, with Pete, our, our CEO, and the early work that he did with Steve Blank in repurposing a lot of Steve's, um, you know, foundational startup methodologies and reorienting them toward 
uh, more mission-driven organizations, right? Because things like the business model canvas and all these startup tools that, that a lot of startup founders are accustomed to using, um, you know, like, like you pointed out, Josh, are not really well suited for organizations where profit is not the driving motive. Um, so, so for us, philosophically, it started way back then, right, with the advent of things like the mission model canvas, which is intended to be the, the driver behind proposing new business ideas or new product concepts in a mission-driven context. Um, so that's, that's kind of where it started for us. Um, Mike, any, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think, you know, just kind of getting, Josh, to your specific question around, you know, do we find it, do we think that what we're doing applies into industry, um, the way that we work in government? And, you know, when I first, when I first left government, I was kind of like looking forward to seeing how, how fast, you know, you can move when you're in industry and, you know, that these, these organizations are, they have none of this like political cruff and bureaucracy. And the reality is it's, it's all the same, right? I mean, any big organization is effectively a government organization. If you were to go to any, I don't know what the size cutoff is, right? But anyone that any organization that's no longer moving fast and breaking things, but rather has process and organization and all these things, you know, like an, like an HR department and, uh, you know, policies and all these things that structure how you work, um, which you have to have in a big organization. Once that exists, uh, everything is basically just government and these, these uh, techniques uh, apply exactly the same way they do in the government, right? You, you simply can't solve a problem by figuring out the user desirability and the technical feasibility, right? Like, can we build the thing and do people want it? That's not enough. <laughs> uh, does anybody in the organization actually want to support this thing, right? That's, that's always the biggest blocker in government. And it's the same thing in any large or, or medium-sized company for that matter. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, a quite uh, strong correlation or corollary to bring it into industry. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely right. Um, and I know, you know, there's a lot of, uh, one of the things that's so interesting from from my perspective of doing some doing work for commercial entities and for government entities is um, there's almost this like grass is always greener phenomenon of <laughs> talking to a yes. government customer. They say, man, like, how are they solving this problem in the commercial space? Um, and then you go to a commercial customer and they're like, you know, wow, you're you know, you're solving this problem for like military weapon systems. That's, that's really interesting. Like, I wonder, um, how are they doing that? And, and would that, could that be applicable here? So it's like, I think it's just problems, um, problems in, in, in this space are just generally hard to solve. And, um, it's, it's like more universally difficult than, than specific to, to commercial versus government. Um, but, uh, yeah, is there any other kind of, uh, topics or offshoots from the blog post that you guys wanted to talk about or cover? Yeah, I mean, so just a, a couple of things I've been thinking of as, as we've been talking. Um, you know, I think specific to to, to your audience here, um, you know, there's there's a large degree, as, as Mike kind of alluded to, right, this, what we call viability problems, right, which are are systemic problems within organizations that that need to be accounted for when, when solving problems. Um, there's a huge, huge, huge degree of social engineering that goes into that, right? And, you know, you can even look to tools like the Business Model Canvas to, um, to, to think about how to attack them, right? You know, so we call, um, you know, there's a box in the Business Model Canvas, which, or maybe it's, I don't know if it's different in the Mission Model Canvas, but it's, it's effectively called like support and buy-in right, which is a code word for saboteurs, right? So if I'm solving this problem within a large organization, who's going to get in my way, right? And, you know, do I need to go out and do extra work, right? Plot a strategy to go out 
and either you know get their buy-in or get the right political capital to end run them or, or whatever I need to do, right? So there's there are these tools in place that we regularly have to employ that that I think are part of any good social engineering, you know, set of best practices. Um, so that was one thing. And then, um, you know, the other thing that, that I mentioned about um, digital transformation and, and organizations and, and people within those organizations having to quickly step up and reinvent the way that they do work, this was something that, that Mike and I, um, you know, kind of thought about early on, right? Because a, a lot of times when we were doing the really early discovery work for, for the work that we're doing now, and we were talking to end users, one of these things that we heard over and over and over again was, when I want to get real work done, I get up from my desk, I walk out the door into the outside, you know, where I don't get to go that often, and then I turn on my cell phone, and I do work, right? Because one of the things that, it, especially in government, that we we always tend to forget is that, you know, people who work for the government are real humans, right? They're consumers just like all of us. And, they, you know, they have the same iPhones, they have the same Macs when they go home and, and everything. So they know about all these tools that exist, but a lot of times they're just limited because of the constraints of their organization. So when they want to get real work done, they go outside, they turn on their cell phone and they're able to do that, right? So one of the things that we did early on was say, okay, we're going to support, um, you know, SMS, right, as, as a way to, to, uh, to access our products, or we're going to support, um, you know, mobile web, for example. So just kind of thinking along those mobile first lines of, of thought. Um, as a way to to access different things, just allowing for people to to become exposed to the to the work that we were doing in a kind of orthogonal way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and yeah, it, I, I know, Mike, you spent a lot of time in uh, in skiffs and disconnected from uh, disconnected from the world and having to you know work around some pretty uh, locked down in, uh, IT infrastructure. Um, and um, it, it definitely adds a layer of frustration uh, to, to to what you're trying to do when you have to work around like pretty pretty locked. But like then you have someone explain why the system is the way it is, and you're like, oh well, okay, I guess that that sort of makes sense why you did that. There was these you know three incidents that happened three years ago, and you know there's there's um, you know so a lot of it is really just a matter of perspective and communication. So uh, I guess the only th- I wanted to like really like foot stomp on Dan's earlier point, which is I assume a lot of your viewers are, you know, like, like me and that like, we like to, we like to dig into the technical, the hard bit, right. They're like, how do I make the thing work and like really understanding the system. Um, but I would just encourage you to uh, not forget the people side, right. The people side is actually generally the hardest part. Uh, if you're trying to build something new or trying to change the way something is done, uh, if you don't first understand the people system um, and whether you're going to social engineer it or, or you're going to try to work with, you know, more within the, you know, the system that exists, it doesn't particularly matter. But, man, I would I would really, uh, really recommend you spend a lot of time up front on that piece um, and, and then look at the tech. Right. Because you can do the tech. You're smart. Like you're going to figure it out. Right. But the people, not always. Right. There's times where it's just not going to happen. Um and sometimes it's best just to walk away after you find out the one key, like, you know, uh, stakeholder is not into it for whatever reason. Uh, and you can spend your time somewhere else, right, on something that's going to actually make it into ops. Um, so that's my one lesson learned. Yep. Uh, marketing actually matters. <laughs> yep, it sure does. Uh, and it matters a lot more than technical folks probably want to believe. <laughs> it's sad, but true, right? 
Yeah, it it sure it sure is. Um, Mike, Dan, it was great to have you on. Um, I, like I said, I really enjoyed the blog post. I think um, we'll definitely link to it in the show notes. And uh, how can people learn more about you and BMNT? Uh, yeah, so uh, there's the best way I think is uh, we have our we have a, a nice page set up on bmnt.ai that goes into our, our software product um, and our, our blog is hosted there where this this article is and, and a number of other ones that kind of discuss our ethos around um, how we think about building software and how we you know approach user experience and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then uh, some more of our, the more of our like uh, consulting work, um, if you're interested in that sort of stuff, especially learning about some of our past customers and, and things we've accomplished with them, that's going to be over on bmnt.com. Uh, there's a blog over there that's got a lot of the, the, the past successes and work uh, projects that we've done. Um, or reach out to us. <laughs> yeah, we're also on Twitter and, and all that. So. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on. It was great. And I hope to have you on again really soon. Yeah, awesome. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains, and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. To learn more about Shift 5 and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.